everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And we'll just die if we don't do this podcast. <laughs> it's nice to be back in the vault, isn't it? It is. Salem was great, but we are so happy to be home. And uh, this was an episode I feel like we been kind of wanting to do for a while. I've always yep. really wanted to talk about the Stepford Wives. Yep. I've always wanted to see it. Yes. It, that blew my mind that you'd never mm-hmm. seen it. So we'll talk about that uh-huh. shortly. And then, um, you know, I know we kind of said we didn't want to do Get Out when it came out, even though we loved the film. It was both of our favorite films last year. But, you know, in the time and the space that has existed since it came out, you know, when I went back to kind of think about like, oh, what can I do to get Stepford Wives on the show? Mm-hmm. I, I just didn't feel like there was another film that spoke so well to it, that that complemented it so well and stood on its own. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. These films have a lot in common, but very different reception stories mm-hmm. that I'm really excited to talk about, and I'm here for it. But um, but are you sure you're uh, you're up to this? I, I feel like I feel like you haven't been the same since you went on that weekend getaway with Danny. No, no. I've just you know what, Andrea. I've just been taking care of myself a bit more. Yeah. Because um, you look you look a little different. No, it's just you know it's this padded bra. Oh. It's, um, it's just, you know, Danny treated me to it. And uh, yeah, no, we just had the most wonderful time. And uh, we're, we're just so happy. We're so happy. And I'm so happy to be back here with all of you to share some recipes and, and just get this started. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, let's get into it then. 1975's The Stepford Wives. In the town of Stepford, the men are getting exactly what they always dreamed of perfect wives, and the dream is becoming a nightmare for the Stepford Wives. A very modern suspense story from the author of Rosemary's Baby. The Stepford Wives, about what men can do behind closed doors. Uh, They were telling me about the Men's Association. Right now, it's strictly men only. Not to mention that creepy Men's Association. We moved here about two months ago. And Ed joins this men's association. Anything that gets him out of the house nights is fine with me. I like to watch women doing little domestic chores. You came to the right town. I want to please him now. I'll just die if I don't get this recipe. It took me so long to get the upstairs floor to shine. Charmaine's changed, Carol Van Zandt's changed, and so have all those other women's club members. I'm getting the hell out of Stepford. Bobby, it's gotten to you now. I just want to look like a woman. And you're not going to leave Stepford either, are you? Leave Stepford? Charmaine changed. Carol Van Zandt changed. She's changed! And stop telling me I'm crazy! You see somebody, you get some help, you, you see a psychiatrist. I think the men in the association are behind it. And my time is coming! Everybody's out looking for us, so don't panic. Where are they? Charlie changed. Bobby changed. And my time is coming. Columbia Pictures and Palomar Pictures present Catherine Ross and Paula Prentice in The Stepford Wives. Oh, no. A very modern suspense story from the author of Rosemary's Baby, rated PG. Joanna Eberhardt and her family moved from New York City to the small town of Stepford, Connecticut. 
Her husband, Walter, soon joins the Shady Men's Association, while Joanna notices something strange about the women of Stepford. They love cleaning, tending to their families, and pleasuring their husbands, but nothing outside of that. She soon befriends Bobby and Charmaine, two other new Stepford residents. After a failed attempt amongst them to start a women's group, Charmaine starts behaving like the other Stepford women. Bobby grows increasingly desperate and paranoid and is determined to move out of Stepford after she and her husband spend a weekend away. Upon her return, Bobby is like the rest of them. Realizing her time is running out, Joanna tries to take her children and get out of Stepford, only to confront Bobby, who she stabs and learns that Bobby is a robot. Joanna goes to the men's association thinking her children are there, only to be confronted by the robot version of herself, who strangles her with pantyhose. The final scene reveals the Joanna bot, fully operational and grocery shopping. The Joanna bot. The Joanna bot. I like like that. that. Yeah, I do. And uh, I like this movie. Big surprise, right? Right. Um, (laughs) Now, I actually saw this movie when I was in high school. Okay. And I was like, I liked it. And I was like, what a hilariously quaint movie back in the 70s when women needed feminism and all of those things. Not like now when I've been raised and told that women can do anything men can do and that men will be fine with it. And it's all good. And I've gone back and revisited this film um, quite a bit, uh, like every few years, I feel like. Yeah. And uh, I've just been like, nope, no, this is a terrifying reality. Oh, yeah, Truly terrifying reality that... We all are part of. Yep. Now, I hadn't seen it until I don't know why. I couldn't tell you why. I hadn't seen it or its remake in all these years, and people are shocked to hear that I hadn't seen it. So I was really happy to finally see it and happy to enjoy it as much as I did. And I knew what it was about. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we're going to talk a little bit later about how the Stepford wife has trickled into popular vernacular and become become a thing. It is in the cultural lexicon. When you say that to someone, you know what it means. And I even knew what it meant having not read the book or seen the movie. But in seeing the movie, I could not believe how overtly feminist it was. I thought it might be a bit more veiled. I thought it might be a bit more implied here and there. I was shocked to hear them talk about, we should start a women's lib group. Yeah, I'm down for that. I dabbled with it a bit in college. I was like, holy shit. And I was also really astonished by the ending. I didn't expect it to go that way. No? We'll talk about that more in a minute as well. Yeah, I think one of the nicest things when I got together with Danny uh, was uh, when I showed him this film about a year ago because he loved Get Out so much. So I was like, oh, well, you got to watch. And he'd already seen Rosemary's Baby. And, and I was like, well, you got to see The Stepford Wives. Mm-hmm. And we watched it. And he was like, these men are terrible. Mm-hmm. And I was like, OK, great. I can see myself marrying you at some point. <laughs> well, I truly can't understand any other reading of this film. But other readings of this film did occur at the time that it was released. And we can get to that or we can get into it right now, shall we? Let's get into it right now. Let's do it. So we've said in this show many, many times before that there's no right or wrong way to be a feminist and to embody feminism and feminist ideals. And certainly we've had different interpretations of movies over the years. This podcast kind of gleans feminist traits out of horror movies where – Maybe they weren't intended. Maybe they don't resonate with everybody that way, but that's okay, and that's valid, and that's legit. 
This one, it seems so obvious. And yet, when you look at this film's production history, Diane Keaton turned down a role because her analyst had bad vibes about it. Other actresses, other prominent feminist actresses didn't really want to touch this one. And in fact, Columbia Pictures invited feminist activists to attend a screening where they booed and hissed, and Betty Friedan was among them. She called it a ripoff of the women's movement and stormed out of the cinema. And, you know, I think Betty Friedan is a really interesting figure to bring into the conversation of uh, the Stepford Wives because this film is such a response to second wave feminism, which Mm -hmm. kind of rose to prominence with Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique. Mm -hmm. And in this book, she goes on to talk about, quote unquote, the problem that has no name. And for for Dan, this problem was a dissatisfaction, anxiety, or low self-esteem of the American housewife in the 1950s and 1960s. The notion that women were supposed to be fully gratified, fully satisfied by having property and economic stability and some prosperity, perhaps, and that a family, that raising a family should be enough for her. But that wasn't the case. Women were desiring more, but they weren't seeing a way out of it. Mm -hmm. And so to name it, to name this problem and bring it forward was really huge. And uh, Ferdinand tried to get it published in a magazine and no one really wanted it. And so she turned this essay into a full book and uh, the feminine mystique became a huge, huge cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are with a movie that so exemplifies the feminine mystique and she wasn't down. There's a really good academic article, which we'll link in the show notes, but unfortunately it is blocked by a paywall. So if you have a local library that gives you access to JSTOR or something like that, use that to go find this. But it's called The Cyborg Mystique and it's by Anna Kirgoy Silver. And she talks about this second wave feminism and how it was determined to ingratiate itself into popular culture and to Mm. bring men along with them Mm -hmm. to say that feminism supports everyone and it is for everyone and we can work together and we can, you know, make things right. You know, by the, by the mid seventies, uh, it had become kind of institutionalized with the National Organization for Women or now and Miss Magazine. And, you know, there was a lot of anger towards feminism. So they were kind of trying to, you know, temper that with the feminism is for everyone. Uh-huh. It's all good. Uh-huh. It's all okay. So the Cyborg Mystique article, which is really great, positions that Friedan's anger towards the film could have been because all of the men of Stepford are evil murderers. Hmm. And it was terrible to portray men that way, <laughs> which I kind of buy. <laughs> Because people were pissed. People were so angry that all of these men in this town were evil. You know, when you look at Walter, who is Joanna's husband, you know, he has these – for the most part, it looks like their relationship is fine. They do a little bit of squabbling. Like, he can't seem to get control of the kids for one minute and she's got her hands full and she's like, I do this all day, man. Just draw a picture. Just fucking do something. Joanna! Yeah? Look, I played Monopoly with him. I, I didn't pass go. I didn't collect. I played backgammon. I played Scrabble with the goddamn kids. They're in the kitchen now. What do you want me to do? Walter, you've had seven years of college. Use your brains. I'm sorry, but I'm on to something, and I think maybe it's the best I've ever done, and I want to stick with it. But how do I amuse them? I amuse them seven days a week. 
And then there's a point where he looks sad and a single tear falls down his face. And I'm like, is this to make you less of a monster? Because no, you're a fucking monster. And the thing is, these men in this film, it's shocking that they're evil because they feel so familiar, Mm -hmm. especially Walter. He's maybe not, you know, in the bits that we know of him necessarily a bad guy, except for the fact that he wants to murder his wife and replace her with a robot. But he's like, I'm busy. I'm making money. Can't you take care of the kids? This is your job. And I think that connotation that that attitude is evil and problematic and contributes to a lot of systemic issues that the second wave feminists were trying to fight against Mm -hmm. and calling it out was it was scary and it, and it seemed to work against what they were saying and i think it's also really important to note that the stepford wife started as a novel written by ira levin who also wrote the novel rosemary's baby mm-hmm. you know he is a male straight male writer writing about i think really well about female paranoia mm-hmm. and another thing i'd like to say about walter like insofar as Modern feminism brings toxic masculinity into the discussion and it really shows how patriarchy is harmful to males as well. And so I feel like Walter, who is just – he is determined to be successful, right? He's a lawyer. He joins this men's club even though he doesn't seem like the kind of guy to joins a men's club. He's playing the game because I think he genuinely thinks it's what's best for him and his family and to give his kids like the best upbringing he can. And it's sad and scary and fucked up that it comes to this. But here we are. And I want to talk a little bit about, I think we did this a little bit in our episode about Young Frankenstein and what we do in the shadows is Mm. we kind of unpacked the terms satire, parody, irony. Like we talked about these terms because they're thrown around and they tend to get a little bit slippery. But satire is defined as when something is exaggerated to the point where it ridicules or presents a critique of something typically something very popular or very powerful. And in this case, the satire is aimed squarely at patriarchy, in my reading anyway. But the thing with satire is, you know, this is a comedy thriller type thing. And so is Get Out. And these are both such strong, powerful satires. And it's a genre where we unpack a lot of satire all the time, but it just, it helps the medicine go down. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? 100%. And another defining point of satire is that it's it's well-meaning, that it, it has an eye to raise awareness and improve things, and it kind of takes aim at things that are, that are really dominant or insidious or that we might not be paying attention to. And so, yeah, this film is so intensely feminist, shockingly so for its time, but in retrospect, it reminds me of another film that I love, Barbarella, which is so campy and over-the-top and ridiculous that... You almost don't realize how sex positive and feminist it is. I think because the term Stepford has become, as you were saying, Andrea, so uh, such a cultural term that we can throw around so easily that when you actually examine the film and when you start looking at the way these women behave, it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's really scary. And it is because in this film we are adhering to gender binary. Mm-hmm. We are adhering to this kind of classical notion of what a woman does mm-hmm. and what a man does. And what this film does is it conflates womanhood with motherhood, wifehood, and being a maid, frankly. Yeah, deference, like servitude to someone else. So when the notion of femininity, when the notion of motherhood is reduced to these base qualities, 
it is chilling. Mm-hmm. It is truly chilling because the interactions we see with these, you know, Stepford bots is they kind of are so blank and vacant that how could anyone have a meaningful relationship with them? Who are these children that are being raised by these mm-hmm. by these things? And I I think every time I've watched this film after I initially saw it, I always get really choked up when um Joanna starts talking about how this thing will cook and clean, but she won't take photographs and she won't be me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it just rips my heart out because that is the thing that I feel like we as women or as a human being is just trying to get across. We are more than these base things we can contribute. We are a person who has things to say and contribute and do. We mm-hmm. have so much to do and to be cut down you know, not even before she's a robot, but um, the microaggressions that happen within the film, like Walter says to her, when are things going to start sparkling around here? Mm-hmm. And she has to take it. Joanna does stand up for herself in this film, but ultimately she does do a lot of the nurturing and the caretaking and all of this emotional labor, which is so problematic because it can't fall solely on one person. That's right. These roles are so pervasive. And I feel like we have to talk about how that fight isn't over. That battle isn't over by a long shot. And uh, I took a little bit of sociology of the family when I was in school. And where I'm going with this is, is my learned experience and not actually something that I took in school. But like family roles are learned by example. And, you know, we were raised in, you know, the 80s and 90s and our parents were products of their times. And then we went off to school and we experienced the world and we were educated in a university setting, which is what introduced me to feminism. I don't know where or how or if I might have gotten it otherwise. So thank you, super expensive tuition for that. But after school, after all that, when you enter the real world, you get the nine to five job, you enter into a relationship. And I don't know about you, but like, I had a roommate right out of school for the longest time. And if my roommate was away and I had a boyfriend, it would be like, oh my God, we've got the place to ourselves." I used to say, come over and we'll play house for the weekend. I used to say we'll play house. And I I just meant that we had the place to ourselves and we can be the mom and we can be the dad. God knows I wouldn't fucking say that now because what happens is it's really easy to slip into the same roles that you saw your parents doing. Mm -hmm. And even with all that experience that you got, all that experience of the real world, all that education and feminism, you wind up kind of emulating your parents unthinkingly. And it's something that, that I struggle with in my relationship. A lot of women I know struggle with in their relationship, how, you know, we, we all have careers and yet the bulk of the emotional labor and the housework still somehow falls to me. And there's a lot of articles about this, about women really having a hard time articulating how challenging that is. And even down to more micro things, like how this is passed on to the next generation, that if I don't correct this, it's never going to stop because my kids are going to see us assuming these roles and it's just going to self-perpetuate. I know. I'd be terrified if my cats picked up on, you know, any kind of thing like that. Yeah. I mean, these really archaic notions, like, you know, they're archaic. You know what I mean? Like, no. Archaic? You know that word. Mm-mm. You used to know that word. Oh, I don't think so. I, I, then I must have forgotten. It, it's just, you know what, I just like to be house proud. It's... um. It's something I've recently taken on, and um, I see it as a real benefit to uh, to my household. Anyway, let's get back to how this film was received, because I think that's such a that's such an important part of the story. 
I think one of the most famous film critics of the 20th century is Pauline Kael. And she had a lot of hot takes before hot takes were a thing. And <laughs> she wrote some great reviews, some very important reviews. She also wrote some that were very like, oh, I don't know about that. So in her review of The Stepford Wives, she wrote, if women turn into replicas of women in commercials, they do it to themselves. Whoa. So that that took the breath out of my lungs. Fuck. And it's like, it's, it's like when you see someone and they're so close to getting the point. They're so close. And then they just like go off and, and you're like, oh, bye. You'll never see the point again. I, I think that note, her review of the film speaks to the entire society that contributes to the Stepfordization mm-hmm. of womanhood, mm-hmm. the reduction of womanhood mm-hmm. to a few base things such as domestic labor and the role of wife and mother. Mm-hmm. And the role of wife and mother to not receive, but just to give. Mm-hmm. There is very little reception, and that's what these men can finally get around. That's right. That's right. And that was largely the mandate of the third wave, right? Is that Ooh. if you want to stay home and be a mom, that's fine as long as it's your choice. Yeah. As long as it's not something that you're badgered into, pigeonholed into. But it, it's something that comes up in life, too. I was traveling with a couple that I'd never traveled with a couple of years ago. And, you I know. You're about to talk about me and Danny. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, traveling with you guys was great. But I think I did tell you about this. I was traveling with a couple and, you know, we were getting ready to go out and I didn't want to monopolize the one bathroom when there was four of us. So I was putting my makeup on in a mirror in the hallway. And my female friend was like, why do you bother? And I was like, well, I I'm getting ready to go out. This is, this is my routine. This is what I do. And she's like, well, isn't it just to like impress men? Like who are you, who are you trying to impress? And it took the air out of me. And I found myself stammering just because I was so shocked. And I found that I didn't have a neat and tidy comeback for it because I don't have a neat and tidy reason why I do wear makeup. I wear it because I want to. As to why I want to, well, that's a really complex web of socialization and self-esteem and so many things. It's really complex. There's no way you can boil it down to approval by men. Was your friend Bradley Cooper who wipes off Lady Gaga's makeup before she auditions? Are you? That happens. That happened. I'm not that was seeing a that news movie. story. No, that was a fucking news story about like what an auteur he is. Fuck that guy. I didn't like him before. I don't like him now. He was okay in Midnight Meat Train. Oh, is that him? Uh-huh. Oh, he gets killed. It's a good movie. I need to rewatch that. It is good. And I also love to wear makeup. I think it's fun. It gives me a sense of identity. But, you know, we have to, as Andrea is saying, be conscious of how we are socialized to accept makeup and female appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was something that Betty Friedan talked about in The Feminine Mystique. And she talked about the way advertising and society focuses on the female figure, about how it created a perfect type of female figure, a perfect type of beauty, Mm -hmm. um, a very white, homogenous version of this beauty. And the way advertising worked and still works is so sinister. It is so sinister. And I work in marketing as my day job, so I can say this. (laughs) It is so creepy in many ways. And then back in the kind of 50s and 60s, what advertising through for Dan's lens was aiming to do was really elevate the role of um, housework, 
Mm-hmm. of beauty, of all of these things, because it was working to keep women in a certain sphere, mm-hmm. the homestead. And, you know, the men were off uh, splitting nuclear atoms, getting involved in the space race, doing all of these things in their career. So the advertising industry had to come up with a way to make women's work feel important and compelling mm-hmm. and worthy. Mm-hmm. And so these women were being fed these things. They were, you know, taught that scrub this floor with this kind of cleaner will make you so happy and it will make your family so happy. And these women were falling apart because they weren't happy. Mm-hmm. They had achieved everything that they could and it meant nothing. Thanks, advertising. If I don't leave the house, I can't be bothered to wear <sighs> makeup. <laughs> and I work from home, so it's not uncommon to walk into the room morgue manor and find me in jogging pants, ladies and gentlemen. <gasps> There's a private sphere and there's a professional sphere and these spheres are are pervasive and they're kind of guarded. Um, There was another study that I came across today where somebody interviewed women at different stages in their lives and they find that there's a time and a place for makeup. It's expected in a business environment, but non-work environments like the gym, the grocery store, schools, they found that students would not wear makeup to class, but they would to go out on the weekend. So like there's definitely a time and a place and makeup's expensive. I don't know about you, but I save my good shit for the big nights out. But speaking of makeup and speaking of advertising, I thought this was such an interesting thing that this movie was sponsored by Bristol Myers' Lady Clairol line. And this is a bit of a tangent, so forgive me, but it was such an interesting rabbit hole that I just fell down. It was just today. Basically, Clairol pioneered home hair dye in the 1950s. And coloring your hair was really stigmatized at the time. If you did it, you did it in secret. You would never admit it. It was considered low class for some reason. I didn't have enough time today to really get into that. I'd love to understand why. Maybe if our listeners know, you could uh, you could inform us. But Clairol hired an advertising firm to help market the product and market it with wholesomeness, that this is something that a good, virtuous, hardworking woman would do. And the job went to a junior copywriter in the company, a woman, and she came up with the slogan, does she or doesn't she? Only her hairdresser knows for sure. And we've heard variations on this over the years. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Does she or doesn't she? Miss Clairol hair color looks so natural, only your hairdresser knows for sure. The campaign was so successful that Clairol's sales quadrupled, and the copywriter, Shirley Polykoff, was inducted into the Advertising Hall of Fame in 1967 for that campaign. And, you know, coming back to our discussion of irony, it's kind of ironic that Clairol would endorse a movie about fake women, about women who are, you know, putting on airs as if the artificiality was something to be aspired to when the movie directly criticized this. Well, it's like uh, Tommy Hilfiger and the faculty. You know, it's it's anything for a buck, right? Uh-huh. And I think a lot of advertisers buy into things without fully understanding them. They just understand it's a movie. And, and again, keep in mind that this came out in 1975. Rosemary's Baby had come out, you know, six, seven years before this and was a cultural sensation. Mm -hmm. It made a star out of Mia Farrow. Mia Farrow and her, like, fucking haircut. Like, that was a Mm -hmm. thing. We talked about that in a Rosemary's Baby episode all those years ago. Mm -hmm. And it, it felt like 
they didn't quite get it. They maybe didn't get to read the script or they didn't bother to read the script or they didn't bother to read the book. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I sent Andrea a video a couple of days ago, a, a recent video like from a couple of years ago about how to dress like a Stepford wife. Oh, my God. And it's the most awkward video in the world because it's this girl kind of nicely but awkwardly talking to the camera about essentially she's creating a preppy look. It's just, you know, preppy New England yacht club kind of vibes. Totally. But she's calling it a Stepford Wife look without irony. Without irony. When I clicked the link, I was like, she's going to be making fun of it. Now do your makeup like this and puff up your boobs and la-di-da. Nope. She meant it. She was like, get out those fucking pearls. Yep. This wicker basket. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you want to look that way, fine. Totally. But you sent me the video and I watched it and I had a hilarious flashback to when the Hunger Games first came out years and years and years ago. And I used to have a blog on my uh, on my website, ladyhellbat.com. And I've since taken it down, I think, because I had stopped updating it and there was just all these posts about when I was a grad student and, and then my boyfriend. And I think I might move to Toronto and here I am in Toronto and I'm trying to sell my stuff at craft fairs and it's not going that – oh, yeah, there's like – it's not embarrassing. It's just It's just not relevant to who I am and the work I'm doing now. But I will post a link to this particular post because I was very upset that The Hunger Games was coming out and the capital, if you're familiar with The Hunger Games, the world is divided into 12 districts and they all live in, you know, poverty and squalor, except for the capital where the government is, are very fabulously wealthy and very flamboyant. And the movie really reflects the flamboyancy of the fashion and the styles. So there was a cosmetic line and indeed a fashion line too. Yeah. Was it MAC? Oh, fuck, I can't remember. Oh, I can't remember either. And I'm bringing it up. But basically there were lines coming out that's like, ah, the Hunger Games are coming out. And look, you too can look just like the people in the capital. And I was like, you fucking kidding me? You know these are the villains, right? These are the bad guys. This is what we're fighting against, this excess. Are we reveling in this excess right now? Oh, it drove me nuts. But, I mean, again, like I said before, the third wave of feminism is you do you. And if that's what you're into, hey, man, as long as it's you. Yeah, and and to keep in mind that third wave feminism really came about uh, in the early 90s. And um, there's a lot of writing, and I think we've talked a bit about it before. Um, so you can look that up if you're interested. Now, I wanted to, I'm very curious, Andrea, what your first reaction was when you were watching the film for the first time and they started talking about this men's association. Mm-hmm. What, what, like, did that, what did that do to you? Uh, it made me laugh. It made me, I, I was stunned when he said that they were going to bring the men's association meeting home to her and let her sit in on this. I was like, what the fuck is this? They're going to talk about guy stuff in front of her. But then they don't talk about guy stuff. They talk about community stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is what women's committees do. I have never once heard of men being like, oh, I'm going to get together a bunch of the guys and, you know, set up a raffle and a bake sale and whatever the fuck. I was like, what is going on here? So, yeah, that was uh, that was a head scratcher to me. Obviously, the uh, the true intentions of the men's committee become clear later. It's a great misdirect, that scene, uh-huh. because really they're kind of putting that on to put Joanna off or any wife. I, I like to think they kind of do this whole little routine for each wife that comes in. Sure of it. And um, it's all a ploy. So that she can be drawn. Mm. Um, She can be drawn by this famous illustrator who's part of the men's club. And that kind of kicks off this whole 
Joanna bot mm-hmm. bringing to life. And I remember when I first watched it in high school, and I watched it with a few friends, a few girlfriends, and we could not stop laughing at the idea of a men's club. Some of our best friends were guys. <laughs> How could this happen? <laughs> this is so silly. Yeah. Again, and, and this is the thing. And, and then when I got into the professional world, particularly in the horror community, intentionally and unintentionally, there are boys clubs. Yes. And not the same thing. No. <laughs> We're talking about gatekeeping. We're not talking about organizing events. Well, some some organizing of events. Uh, I mean, elements of gatekeeping. Um, I'm talking about things where men generally occupy a lot of space. And I remember once a, a few years ago, I was at um, a, a film event and I was chatting with a couple people. And then they're like, oh, cool, we're going to dinner. And I kind of got invited along Mm -hmm. and it was all of these men and they were totally great and they were totally nice and everyone was cool and chill but I realized the amount of networking they were doing right there yeah oh I've got this thing coming up oh I'd love to talk to you about it like this yeah yeah just call me here's my number blah 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 yeah all of this thing and I was just like I could never get anywhere near that no and it was terrifying to me. And I think, again, when we're talking about spheres for women, there is a privatized sphere for men. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, this sharing of information, this collective knowledge. And, and I think, you know, 95% of it completely unintentional, completely unintentional, oh, yeah. harmlessly meant. I don't take offense to that. It, it was just shocking in that moment. Absolutely. To fully cognitively understand it. And, and then I think there's maybe 5% of people who are like, huh, no women. We're going to talk about our balls and how we can, you know, make things with each other. <laughs> like, like career things, I mean. And, and these things happen. And, and it's, it's, it's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird. And it's, it's so scary to me because you know the the heart and the and the fear that i feel uh through Catherine Ross who plays Joanna it feels more familiar to me with every year that passes mm-hmm. and it's so fucking scary when she finally does get the women together and they're sitting around and it's so painful when two of their members are just like they just start talking about household shit well that's not fair. i did find that part pretty interesting i got some good tips out of that so really? i mean like take it down a notch oh when I, you know what? No, you seem a little agitated, Andrea. Why don't I just make us a nice pot of coffee? No, 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 no. Okay, you go make a pot of coffee. I'm going to talk about that scene because I've hosted many a girls' night, many, many a girls' night, and it feels so different. And it's crazy because it's not even like we're talking about men, but you can feel the power dynamic in the room. You can feel the power in the room or – Maybe more accurately, you can feel the lack of powerlessness that having a man in the room can bring. And I think women speak so much more candidly and passionately when they're not worried about being spoken over, when they're not worried about being interrupted, when they're not worrying about being mansplained. It's just one of those things so that when I'm watching this scene, and, you know, granted, this is back in the 70s, I don't expect everything to reflect my everyday existence, but, oh, it was hard to watch. In the novel, which uh, I did manage to read, it's it's basically a novella. It's very, very short, um, but quite good if you're interested in reading it. They talk about the women's association that happened before 
Joanna got there uh, and the women's groups that, that were active and participatory. And they talk about Betty Friedan coming to speak and that being the impetus of when things started to change. Mm. And then people stopped getting interested and people and in the film, they just allude to it as like a lecture happened and, and things were happening and then people started to drop off. But I thought it was really interesting that they name checked Betty Friedan so overtly mm-hmm. in it. Um, and Charmaine, who is this, you know, really like... I loved her. She was like this really fucking cool sex kitten. And then she turns right after that. She was so tragic because I, she was perfect. Exactly. Like she was already everything that any man could want, Mm -hmm. except that she wanted to play tennis instead of swim in his fucking swimming pool. (laughs) And what about Bobby? Oh, I breaks my heart. Breaks my damn heart because I was like, I would be fucking friends with that woman. Yeah. She is the coolest. She's oh, so you are fun. that woman. I was like, Bobby is... So- oh, I was like, Bobby's Bobby is my Alex. She's my <laughs> taller, more gregarious self. Oh. I was like, oh, she has hair like Andrea. Oh, interesting. Like the big kind of curls. It's big. But it's it, that transformation was, was really heartbreaking because she's so vivacious and she's so loud and absolutely charming that the more paranoid and desperate she becomes, the more scared you become for her. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in Rosemary's Baby, you're so situated within Rosemary's viewpoint. And she's, you know, like her allies, like her landlord and things like that. But ultimately, it's just her. Mm-hmm. And here you have this trifecta of women and they're just getting ticked off like dominoes. Yeah. You know, and they realize, you know, when Joanna realizes the four month thing and it's like, it's just this insidious, creepy thing. And and she, for that women's group meeting, had to make that deal with the guy who wanted to record her voice. Right. Yes. I'll record this if you get them to come to this meeting. Which was such a ballsy thing is she's like, I am going to get something out of this, you know, something for me, something for you. And it, it was such an empowering moment only to have it turned against her like that. I thought it was interesting. I wrestled with this a lot that she finishes the voice recording. Oh, yeah. She, she gets to the end. You hear her do the Zs. She sees it through. Zoot suit, Zulu. And that's that. So I've really struggled with that moment over the years in my love of this film and my enjoyment of this film. And I don't expect to understand or or empathize with every single moment in every single movie. That's you don't? I expect you to. <laughs> the old Alex would. And then I came across this tweet. Uh, well, I was actually on my way into work this morning, which was to quit so I could uh, stay at home more. Um, but it was uh, a tweet from someone who attended a conference and a presentation that was given by a feminist activist and um, social justice activist uh, called Julie Lalonde. And um, you know, this person was saying, saw this thing when she re- presented and it really spoke to me. And um, it's a picture of text on a screen that says, Teach girls to prioritize feeling safe over being nice. Wow. And that's really simple. And, you know, I know we're having these conversations right now, like, teach boys not to rape, not girls to not get raped. Also very true. But it it just clicked a lot of the film for me and the social cues that we have ingrained in ourselves in women as women to say, I'm going to make everyone else feel comfortable. Before my safety, before Mm -hmm. I feel emotionally safe, physically safe, you know, things like that, Mm -hmm. you know, and and if I had really thought about that and processed that kind of idea, I probably wouldn't be spending as much on therapy as I do now, (laughs) frankly. It's so insidious. I have two nieces and when I see her, it just falls out of my mouth 
how nice she looks. It falls out of my fucking mouth, and I hate it, and it comes out of me, and I'm like, what? No, no! Teach her everything else other than how important her appearance is. But it's so socialized it's within so socialized. us, and it's really hard to break that pattern. Well, and, and I want to talk a bit about the, the socialization and the oldness of the men's association. You had a really fun word for it earlier. Oh, never mind, honey. Don't worry about the big words. Okay. But so to talk about the way the men's association is represented within the film, it's in a Victorian house that is falling apart but is being rebuilt by this association. They're Mm. fixing it up. Mm -hmm. And it is the one home which these women don't have access to. Right. Throughout the film, they're all kind of wandering into each other's homes. They're all, you know, going to see each other, having coffee, doing whatever, which is amazing. Wandering into each other's houses, listening to each other have sex. Let's talk about that in a second. Okay. And in the film, Joanna has to make the choice to go in there because she hears her children's voices. A lot of stuff that happens in the ending of the film happens in the book, but slightly different order. Okay. And there's a part in the book where Joanna's, you know, thinking to herself, the children are probably safe. They wouldn't hurt, like, the lineage of Walter's family. Mm. I need to get out and go. That's right. I'm going to be safe, and then I'm going to come back and figure out how to get my kids. But in the film, it is this motherly tie to her children, which is a bond I'm sure is greater than anything I could ever know, Mm -hmm. that drives her back into this house. Mm -hmm. And she has never been allowed in there, but her love for her children makes her go in there. And Mm -hmm. she fucking goes in there. She confronts Diz, who's the leader of the men's association. Fuck that guy. Fuck him. And she tells him to fuck right off. Uh, Okay. It's so good. The final scene in this this whole sequence is so it, it just rattles me every time I see it, and I rewatched it again after I, I watched it for this episode, just so I could kind of try to crystallize some some many feelings about it. <laughs> and what's interesting, which I'm sure kind of everyone noticed when they watched it, is that the room that Joanna gets into as she's running away is a replica of her own bedroom. And that's where the Joanna bot is brushing her hair. She's got mm-hmm. the bigger tits. Mm-hmm. And that's where we assume as Joanna bot approaches Joanna with the pantyhose, she's going to kill her. Yes. And that's where she dies. The fact that this scene and this set is framed within a Victorian manner brought me back to something that I'd recently been researching for the lecture I gave in Salem. And uh, if any of you were there, <laughs> you may hear me repeat myself. But this notion of the Victorian hearth angel. And this was the notion of the glorified, deified Victorian wife who was so subservient to her husband. Um, this guy, Coventry Patmore, wrote this, like, fucking epic. Not, it's not long. It's just stupid poem about how amazing and subservient his wife was. And this became the Victorian ideal. Mm-hmm. And it's like this really fucking creepy doll's house mm-hmm. where the Victorian angel is going to sweep down and become the angel of death and eat your autonomy. (laughs) That's a big word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that actually reminds me of something I came up with in my research, which is the cult of domesticity. Oh, that sounds fun. Do do they have a website? (laughs) Uh, So it's a value system describing the virtues of true womanhood. And in 1966, a historian by the name of Barbara Welter examined women's media from 1820 to 1860. She looked at magazines, religious literature. That was women's media. Hot. Um, And she came up with a typology of true womanhood as having four factors. Uh, Piety. 
purity, submission, and domesticity. And, you know, this was an ideology that was promulgated through sermons, books, religious texts, magazines, and even labor laws that restricted women from working hours so as not to interfere with household responsibilities. So, you know, that was a typology developed in 1966 in retrospect, but coming back to Victorian era womanhood that you just mentioned, it came up in my research that Initially, the fembots of Stepford were imagined as being kind of a bit more like Playboy bunnies, wearing hot pants and halter tops and just being very overtly sexual. But in the film, we've got this English filmmaker, Mm -hmm. this English director who was brought in, and he and his wife, actually, who starred in the film as well, uh, brought in... uh, Carol Van Sant, and the director's name is Brian Forbes. Thank you. It was actually her suggestion to make the reformed Stepford wives a bit more demure, a bit more Victorian in their dress, at least. And, you know, they've got these long skirts, but a lot of décolletage, a lot of cleavage, still sexy, but a lot more akin to kind of plantation-era America. And I thought it was interesting because uh, we'll link this in the show notes, but there is um, a making of doc on uh, YouTube called The Stepford Life. And the guy who plays Walter is interviewed, and he insinuates this thing that, like, yeah, they were supposed to be more like playboy bunnies, but because of, you know, this actress, the director's wife, who plays Carol Vincent, they had to be more covered because of her figure. Because of her figure? Yeah. Implying that she was heavier. How did I miss that? I don't know. That's why when you I sent it to you, I was thought you were going to like flip your lid. Gross. No, I was just kind of like, Playboy bunnies? Really? That seems really contrary to the plot. And it snagged in my brain because I also saw an interview with Brian Forbes where he admitted uh, he was really baffled by the fact that feminists were not embracing this film. And uh, he was actually assaulted at a premiere by a, quote, women's liber who attacked him with an umbrella. And his response to that was, you know, it's a fantasy. First and foremost, it's a fantasy. And second of all, that if anyone looks stupid in this film, it's men. And I, I read that quote and I'm like, fantasy? Stupid? Like, <laughs> You know, he admits in interviews that it taps into an unspoken male fantasy of a compliant, sexy wife who's always ready to take her clothes off, but she's a complete virgin otherwise. It's the virgin horror dichotomy that we talk about all the time. And he points to the longevity of outlets like Playboy itself. And so I almost wonder that from his perspective, is this film a fantasy to men and satire to women? Do you know what I mean? Like, I th- Yeah, I do. I, I'm scared of any man who thinks this is a fantasy. I'm scared that he thinks it's a fantasy. I'm scared that he would even... Br- I mean, and maybe it's just he's a product of his time and, and it wasn't really acceptable for a man to adopt a super feminist stance to be like, no, man, the men are the monsters here, not... They look kind of silly, don't they? Don't at me. <laughs> anyway, that's a question I'll leave to our listeners, I guess. So one of the things that was always really fascinating to me about the Stepford Wives was Joanna's career or her hopeful career as photographer. And I I went back, I, I read it a bit in university. And, and, and so for this episode, I, I went back and um, revisited bits of it. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Susan Sontag's On Photography, which is a book that she wrote in the 1970s about 
photography, shockingly enough, but <laughs> about the political aspects of photography. Okay. And how photography has evolved from something that documented death and crimes to marriage to families to leisure activities uh -huh. to, you know, we document ourselves, we create narratives for ourselves using photography. What Joanna does throughout the film is she, you know, it's not it's not a huge plot point necessarily, but it is her thing that pulls her away from her family. Mm -hmm. The thing that she asked Walter to take care of her kids to do is because she's really on to something. The only thing, her only passion outside of her family. It's interesting to me, and I think this goes into the discussion as well for me about why is it important to have diversity behind the camera? Why is it important to capture things? And photographs are historical documents. Mm -hmm. Yes, now they can be altered, but you know, especially back in the 70s, it was pretty much like there's things going on around the photograph, but what you choose to shoot is of high political importance. That's right. And so what you have with Joanna is someone who is interested and engaged and who is looking to document a new kind of narrative. Her narrative, she is laying claim to a story that she knows and wants to share and tell the world about. And that's not something that her husband could do. That's not something anyone in the men's association could do. And Sontag talks a lot about that. And, you know, she talks about many other things, but she also mentioned this thing which I thought was really interesting is that photography is a non-intervention. You document something, you don't intervene in it, but you are still party to it. You are still engaged with it somehow. And I think that, you know, Joanna, by documenting her life, these, these things around her by creating a new narrative, maybe even perhaps in a small way, mm -hmm. is deviating from what the Stepford ideal is. She is creating something new. She's creating something that maybe didn't exist before or existed in a small way that she wanted to share. Huh. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think, um, or rather, I know we're going to be talking more and more about photography in the next film. Yes, we definitely are. But I have a feeling that my reading of the photography, I read... Joanna's photography as, you know, she was struggling. She was um, she was struggling to fit in with Stepford. And as a result, at that time, her photography, she was struggling to get it sold. Nobody was really interested. But when she started taking photos of the children, she brought that into the art dealer and he was like, okay, you've got something here. And I kind of interpreted that as a really traditional reification of this is your domain. This is your sphere. This is what's safe for you to capture. I agree with that. I also thought there was something about the way uh, that scene that happens when she's uh, shooting her children who are playing with Bobby's children, um, that there's something incredibly light and silly and messy and dirty about it. It's mm. not this... It's not this contrived it, setup. Artificial. Exactly. It's not an ad campaign. It's okay. not these children playing nicely with a little truck. Yeah, yeah. It's kids like splashing water on each other and running around and getting dirty okay. about this, you know, kind of really natural quote unquote natural mode of motherhood of, you know, being a caretaker and letting these kids have fun and, and playing with them and watching them and letting them go do their thing. Okay. Um, and so it may not be the most revolutionary photography in the world, but it was something that clearly you can see through the film that when she's shooting it, the film implies through music, through the visuals, through everything it does, that Joanna's really excited about it. Yes. And I think no matter what, her getting excited about it, that made me feel like yeah. this 
this is important. And made it real. This is important. And and she chased that down and, and she got good feedback. Mm-hmm. So again, not the most revolutionary thing in the world, but she documented something that was not the typical advertising campaign. Yeah. yeah. I get it. She was also super fucking thirsty in that interaction where I was just like, settle down, man. Am I crazy? Aren't they good? Please say something. I don't care. No, I do care. Don't say anything bad. Is this like a plot point? Is this you need his approval to... I don't know. Well, I think having gotten no approval at home, someone saying this is good, (sighs) meant a lot to her. One final point I wanted to mention about the idea of photography in this film is that Photography, in contrast to something we have already mentioned in this podcast, which is drawing, Mm. the men do not photograph her. They draw her. Not that we certainly don't see them taking photographs of Joanna. They draw her. There is an interpretation of her. There is an idealized image. And Catherine Ross, the actress who plays Joanna, is, is I think she's beautiful. Oh, yeah. And she's, frankly, my style icon in this film up until the end. But this drawing that the illustrator kind of gives her is like, oh, this is what I was doing, mm-hmm. is quite like, it's stunning. It's, it is. It's stunning. It's a stunning drawing. It's, it's a stunning woman. Yeah. But there's something um, that veers between the ethereal and the uncanny in that drawing. And it's, again, this idealized version of her. And I think, you know, Joanna's role as a photographer is to document the real mm-hmm. and hopefully the spontaneous and the true. Yes. Whereas the men's association are once again perpetuating the ideal. Yes. His gaze, his interpretation, his attention to features that he wants to emphasize. The big eyes, the hair falling down. Bigger boobs. Face. Why not? Why not? It's sad. And it's a sad movie with a very sad ending, which I have to say I was pretty surprised insofar as I was aware of what The Stepford Wives was, what it was about, its lore. I didn't expect it to end on such a dark note. I expected her to persevere in some respect. I thought maybe she'd get out and nobody would believe her, but at least she'd survive. Joke's on me. Joke's on you, man. Mm. Um, It's a hard thing to watch this film knowing what's coming. Knowing what's coming for Bobby, knowing what's coming for Charmaine, what has come for all of them. Because as they discover, you know, they were bright, smart women who who wanted to change the world and were slowly, systematically taken apart by their husbands. They were destroyed. They were dismantled. And I, I also have to say that for a film made in 1975, a film that tackles replacing living humans with cyborgs, this film does so very delicately. Like any attempt to try and show any robotics or any Terminator 2 kind yeah. of exoskeleton type shit would have dated the film so badly. But it was so well done how she's driving past these signs. She's thinking about the cybernetics. She's thinking about the drawing and the voice recording. It's really done well. And that the fact that, you know, the Joanna bought, the thing that distinguishes her is not only her kind of gauzy nightgown, her bigger boobs, but those big black eyes. Yeah, I guess she wasn't my fucking She dreams. wasn't done yet? Or maybe they take the real eyes? And yeah, think, something at one point Diz says to her, like, we we had to rush with you. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that was something. But just the, the notion of being destroyed by the quote-unquote more perfect version of yourself mm-hmm. is um, fucking haunts me. So how does the ending in the book compare? So the ending in the book... Generally, you know, it's told from third person. We're generally with Joanna for a lot of it. And uh, the final moments with 
Joanna before she's turned are when she's with Bobby and she's like, I will cut myself to bleed. And Bobby's just walking towards her. And mm-hmm. Joanna is thinking, you know what? I hope I'm wrong. This is so silly. This is so silly. She's going to bleed and it's going to be fine. And every, and I'm going to, I'm crazy. That's what this is. Yeah. Yeah. And then it ends. And then. Oh, it ends when, there. Well, it, that's when Joanna's narrative ends. Okay. And, a little bit earlier in the book, um, this character, Ruth Ann, is introduced, and she's a new wife in Stepford, and she and her family are black. Okay, they're in the movie a There's smidge. a mention of them, and then you see them at the very tail end of the film. And the husband uh, refers to that character as Linda, so different okay. from Ruth Ann. And Ruth Ann, so we get to know her a little bit in the book. She's a children's author. She's written a book about a little girl who goes out and does things. And Joanna says to her, like, oh, I read that book to my kids. It was so great that it wasn't her just throwing a tea party. And the woman's like, yeah, I wrote this book for, like, girls to learn that they can go out and do fun things and different things. Okay. And the book ends with this very small section that Ruth Ann bumps into Joanna in the grocery store. And Joanna's got this perfectly stocked grocery cart. She mm-hmm. looks amazing. She's so thin. And, and Joanna says, I'm sorry, we haven't gotten together for lunch. I've just been so busy with housework. And then uh, there's a final coda of Ruth Ann in her home asking her husband to take care of the kids because she's so close to finishing her next book. And she illustrates and she writes it all. So she's working on these illustrations and things like that. And she's like, I just need a little bit more time. Yeah. And it ends. Wow. So, ah. And what's interesting is, so when I read the book, and again, it's such a quick read, my heart was racing at the end of the book. It was racing because I was like, come on, we're the head. And then it just ends and you're like, no. And at the end of the film, I, I get pretty weepy. Oh. Because I, I just, it's so, it feels so real and so scary and, and so terrifying. Right. We didn't talk much about um, William Goldman, who had written the screenplay and had some creative disagreements with Forbes, especially with regard to the ending. And we should say that today, the day we're recording, uh, news broke that he passed away today. And yes. uh, it's very sad. He was a huge influence in Hollywood, writing, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Princess Bride, a number of iconic films and writing about Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, in really interesting, funny ways. So it's it's sad to lose a figure like that. Yeah. Uh, in the community. And um, yeah, he, he was not a fan. And my understanding was is that his original ending for the film mm-hmm. was a much more violent death for Joanna at the oh. hands of Joanna Bott. Hmm. And that it was going to be shown more. And Forbes, again, from the Stepford Life documentary, talked about how he just felt like that wasn't where the film was. It didn't live in this kind of violent place. It, there was violence happening, but it wasn't that kind of violence. Yeah. The sanitization of the violence forces me as an audience member to work harder to imagine what happened to her. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure. But, like, then these people disposing of her body and and it's more horrific in my mind. Okay. Than I think could have ever really been captured on screen. Well, there you go. So I'm I'm not I'm not angry about that, but that's what I understand the alternative ending that was written but not shot to be. Yeah. Even what little violence there is in the film. I mean, I was quite taken aback that she went from, look, I bleed. I cut my fingers. I need to prove that you bleed. I could cut your fingers, but here's a knife to the fucking fucking gun. That was like, wow, she's very confident in her hysterical, not confident rant that I hope I'm fucking right. Yeah, that's okay. 
And we should touch on briefly the 2004 remake. I was sort of interested because I liked the original so much, but with what little reading I did about the remake, it sounds like a... Oh, it's a shit show. It sounds like a parody of a satire, and that's it just going to piss me right off. It's not a good movie. It is not a good movie, but it is a film that I am fascinated by because it was such a clusterfuck. Mm. What I will say is that the film actually has some very interesting ideas, and it has very interesting ideas in particular in regards to the ending. Okay. Now, the ending deviates heavily from what happens in the film and in the book. They shot, apparently, originally, uh, Frank Oz, the director, they stuck very close to what happens in the original film and novel, and test audiences hated it. So they reshot an entire other ending, which is, on one hand, quite interesting. Mm. On the other hand, makes no fucking sense. And this is Frank Gauze's The Muppet Show, yeah, Frank Gauze. Yeah, yeah. Like. And it basically, I, I think the best way to think of it is it's the camp version of the Stepford Wives. You know, like you were saying, it just, it, it doesn't quite fit tonally. There is one, for me, it's there's one truly funny line by John Lovitz in the film, and uh Glenn Close is always amazing. Always. Um, the one thing I will say that I find very interesting, and you would, I don't want to give away the ending if anyone hasn't seen it and is curious, but what I will say, what I've always found interesting about the film is that, so it stars Nicole Kidman as Joanna Eberhardt. She's this, you know, high-powered TV exec, and, and she has to move out to Stepford. And um, she's got this short brown hair and these kind of black clothes and these oddly, you know, she's very, like, done like tightly wound, mm-hmm. you know. And then when she is transformed into a stepper wife, she's got this long blonde hair, she's wearing gowns. She's the Nicole Kinman we know mm-hmm. as a public figure. Okay. And I always thought that was really fucking interesting uh. that the Stepford version of Joanna Eberhardt in 2004 was Nicole Kidman movie star. The real life. Oh, my God. Like when she walks, you know, when she turns this corner and it's, you know, quote unquote, Joanna bought in, in you know, the 2004 version. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's Nicole Kidman on the red carpet. That's hilarious. Yeah. And at the time, was she married to no. a man who was part no. of a men's association that he pays <laughs> a lot of money to be part of? Where is Shelley Miscovich, guys? Where is she? I'd like to know. I think they just broken up. Okay. It was 2004. This was her comeback? One of them. She also did that weird Bewitched remake. Oh, yeah. I'm fascinated by Hollywood shitshow stories, mm-hmm. and this is truly a shitshow story. I do think it has some interesting things to say. So if you love The Stepford Wives, keep the original close to your heart, and maybe check out the remake on a rainy day. I don't know. Based on that, I, I really don't think I'm going to give this the time of day. How could you do a thing like that? How could do you it. do a thing like that? What? How could you do a thing like that? Alex. How could you do a thing like Stop. that? Stop. How could you how 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 could you do a thing like that? How could you do a thing like that? Are you good now? Yeah. Yeah? Maybe. Got I don't know. You took me into that back room for a little out bit. Out of your system? That was scary. I think we better move on for the sake of our listeners, for the sake of me. We gotta move on to get out. So funny story. I, I think we actually maybe mentioned this in our live podcast, but uh, there was an Alexa unit <laughs> in our Airbnb in Salem. And so, you know, I was tweeting and stuff like, how can we fuck with this thing? We had a great time with her. Honestly, we were sitting around playing asshole and it was like, oh, who was it that played that blah, blah and that blah, blah? And we would ask Alexa. It was really convenient. We used her a lot for weather and some such. But if you ask Alexa 
what her favorite movie is, she replies, "I got in to get out." I really got in to get out. We were floored. We had just decided that this was going to be our next yeah. episode, and we were like, "What in the flying fuck?" Of course, Alexa likes this movie because there's nothing not to like about this movie. So, without further ado, get out. You got your toothbrush. Check. Do you have your deodorant? Check. Do you have your cozy clothes? Got that. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might wanna, you know. Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bro. Meeting family, taking road trips. Don't come back all bougie, man. Come back, get your damn pants up to your damn stomach. <laughs> <laughs> So you guys coming up from the city? Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend. Can I see your license, please? He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Call me Dean and you're hungry, my man. So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> <laughs> we hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go. smoke in front of my daughter. I'm gonna quit. She'd take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. I'm good, actually. Are you ready for this? I'm back in the beat. So look, I go do my research. Apparently, a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's cool. Bro, how are you not scared of this, man? Couldn't see no brother around here. Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being here. Get out. Sorry, man. Get out! Yo! <laughs> Rose, we gotta go. Is everything okay? Rose, the keys. Just get the keys. I don't know where they are. Rose! Sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. Oh, my. and Rose have been together a while, but when she invites him to meet her family on their country plantation, she reveals that they don't know that Chris is black. She assures him that it's no big deal, but his racial identification is obviously the elephant in the room throughout their visit, especially since Rose's parents have two black people on staff as hired help. To make matters worse, Rose's psychologist mom insists on hypnotizing Chris in order to cure him of his smoking habit by way of clinking a teaspoon against a china cup to send him to the sunken place where he's paralyzed and can only observe the outside world. The family throws a party with awkward conversations and microaggressions aplenty, and after a particularly troubling encounter with their one black guest who attacks Chris and tells him to get out, Chris decides to leave the Armitages. 
Rose initially plays at going with him, but she's actually involved in the family's plot to kidnap Chris and transplant a blind man's awareness into his body. This was the actual purpose of the family get-together, to sell Chris off to the highest bidder. Chris is able to escape and murders Rose's brother and parents before encountering her on his way out. He almost strangles her to death, but doesn't, and is eventually rescued by his friend Rod, who is suspicious of the visit throughout. That's a really, you know, it's a good chunky paragraph, but there's so much more going on in this film. So much, and I think one of the brilliant things about Get Out is its almost duplicitous simplicity. Someone in October was like, tag at Scare Alex on Twitter, list your top five favorite horror movies, and Get Out rose in there. Oh, of course. I, I That's going to be in my top brilliant. five for many years to come. So, like, let's just get the gushing out of the fucking way right now. And if you don't like Get Out... That's fine. You don't need to at us on it. <laughs> if you don't like, if you're the 1% of Rotten Tomatoes, like this film, holy shit. This is one of those films that I'm like, I have to keep it on a shelf. I have to consciously work hard not to make this the benchmark against which to measure all other films because holy fuck. But it at is the same perfect. time, I truly believe that if you aren't already, and I already feel like I am a bit as a film critic, we will be talking about a time before Get Out and after Get Out. Mm-hmm. It's truly a watershed moment in so many ways that we're going to talk about that is so important to culture and popular culture and horror and these things that we love that I feel coming to this film and and we are two white women talking about this film. Yes. Um, so we need to acknowledge that right off the start. And and I am, frankly, a bit intimidated to talk about this film from that vantage point. Me too. Me too. We can talk about Stepford Wives and we'll be like, we and we and we because we identify as the oppressed party in that particular film. But when it comes to this film, we're going to talk a lot about seeing through Chris's eyes, but we cannot and will not ever be able to truly see through Chris's eyes. Uh, we can feel things and we can think things and we'll talk about our thoughts and our feelings, but this is a group to which we don't belong. No. And so I think right off the bat, um, we want to recommend a couple of things that are from Black journalists, scholars, um, and so forth that really contribute to the entire discussion around Get Out. So the first thing I want to mention, I'm going to talk about her in a little bit, is Robin Armines Coleman, who uh, wrote the book Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from 1890s to Present. And then we're also going to link in the show notes an episode by the end NPR podcast, Code Switch, mm-hmm. uh, which is about Get Out, and they talk to uh, Means Coleman, they talk to Jordan Peele, and it's a really great discussion about race in film and race in horror films. And then, of course, I don't think we can truly talk about this topic without giving a lot of dues to Ashley Blackwell yep. and the website Graveyard Shift Sisters, yep. which she runs. It's an invaluable resource. She has an entire get out syllabus on that website, which we linked before. We're going to link it again. It has a lot of amazing articles. And the other thing I, I kind of want to say right off the bat is I feel like not only is Get Out an amazing film, it's I feel very lucky as a horror academic to have a director like Jordan Peele mm-hmm. behind this film because he is so forthcoming about influences and talking about it and like going to university classes and engaging in the conversation yes. that it feels like, 
oh, it, it's this incredible access. And it's not this like, I'm a director, I'm over here and I go do stuff. And yeah. I'm, I'm behind the curtain and I do all these things. It's someone who really, truly understands what films can mean to communities and yeah. wants to engage and, and have those conversations. So in this podcast, we're going to be referencing those people and we're going to be referencing things that Jordan Peele has said and talking about them. But it's... This is just a wonderful film. And, and I feel really lucky because we, Andrea and I got to see this together at a preview screening. For the first time together. Mm-hmm. How often do we get, have we ever even gotten to say that on this podcast? That, oh, the first time I saw this film was with Alex in a fucking cinema. I don't think so. I don't think so either. But it was fun. It was a packed, packed I think preview screening. I think the buzz was that it was excellent. Mm-hmm. The buzz was that it was very good. And I think we still walked out astonished and gobsmacked at how good it was. And I'd been a fan of uh, Jordan Peele's comedy sketch show that he did with Keegan-Michael Key called Key and Peele, appropriately enough. And it's it's a really fantastic show. And when it was announced that Jordan Peele was making this film with Blumhouse, I actually wasn't very surprised because there's so many horror callbacks and references throughout that show that it it was pretty clear to me they were both really big horror fans. Mm. And it's a very clued in show to um, microaggressions and race and and all of these things and parodying them and in a really entertaining way. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Get Out is a byproduct of uh, Jordan Peele is, is not a surprise to me. No. But what I think is truly impressive about this film is how lean it is. I, I don't know if I can remember. I've seen this film about five or six times mm-hmm. since it was released, watching it with various people, watching it for myself again, and, and I cannot think of a better paced, more focused, clear-eyed film. Mm-hmm. It is a clear intention. It is ambitious in so many ways that are maybe not the like, I'm fucking hereditary. I'm Tony Collette crawling all across a fucking wall. Mm-hmm. It's it's ambitious in the things that is bringing to light and in the way it's talking about it, and a lot of things that it doesn't include, and the things that it does include. And um, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, huge fan. And like Alex says, there is a wealth of material out there of Jordan Peele talking about this film, talking passionately and articulately about this film, and we encourage you to check all of that out because he does this film so much justice. And what I love about this is we've talked about we've talked about films that have been accidental successes and serendipitous and that it had the right lead or it came out at the right moment or like, you know, there was some kind of external thing that happened. Whereas this film, I I feel like it it is truly organic in that when you hear him talking about it, as he says, ground zero for this film is Chris. And it's a film about him and his story and from his perspective. And he wanted to make a scary movie and everything else came out of that. And as a result, it's so sincere. It's not contrived. It's not ramming anything down our throats. And it's so, so authentic. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the business of Hollywood and the business I find very interesting. So Get Out has the honor of being the highest grossing film by a first-time director based on an original script. And which I just learned on my way over from an Oprah podcast where she interviews Jordan Peele, which is a really great interview. So I'm going to link it in the show notes. And that is the first time a black director has also been nominated for best screenplay in the same year. Mm. Like that's huge. 
And when we were talking about this film back in January 2018, you know, we were just as in love with it as we are now, but the Oscars hadn't happened. Right. And I think the nominations had come out at that point, but that that was a big deal. It got nominated for Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Picture, Best Actor, yeah, uh, and I think a couple other technical awards, but that's huge. It that was is... up against some heavyweights that year, too. Totally. None of which I can remember off the top of my head. Well, uh... I mean, The Shape of Water was a pretty big deal. I don't think I loved it as much. Yeah, and that's cool. But, you know, I I think there's a lot of interesting things on the lead up to the Oscars and the Oscar nominations and then the fallout afterwards. So, Mm -hmm. like, right now I'm seeing a lot of, like, Tony Collette should get nominated for an Oscar. Jamie Lee Curtis should get nominated for an Oscar. And, yeah, totally. Fucking hope they do get nominations. That'd be great. And so there's all this, like, anxiety about these great performances and and great creations and horror getting nominated for Oscars. And then when they don't, or if they don't get nominated, it's like, fuck the Oscars. They don't fucking mean anything. And it's like, guys. So I think for me, I am fascinated by the Oscars. I watch it every year. And it's not because they pick the best films, because that's impossible. Because as we have talked about so many times on this podcast, what is good is subjective. Mm -hmm. You cannot capture that. What is important about the Oscars is the politics of it, Mm. how things are marketed, how campaigns are run, and what eventually wins and what that means. So from the outset, as the Oscars kind of ramped up, a lot of people were calling for Peel to win Best Original Screenplay because everything I read was like, yeah, this is kind of the outliers category. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is where like the oddball will come in and like fucking win like the Oscar for it. And it's not necessarily like a pat on the head, but it's like they would f- the academy would feel more comfortable giving a best original screenplay to someone who's more up and coming and did something a bit more avant-garde than a best picture. Okay. So I mean, everything I read was calling for Jordan Peele to win the Oscar. And I went to the Oscars at a cinema this year. And I was totally expecting that. I actually remember Nicole Kidman was presenting the award. Uh-huh. It's a nice little segue between our last discussion. <laughs> and when she announced it, I was just like, ah! Oh, I, did I, the theater erupt? People were applauding. It was incredible. I just was like, I was so happy yeah. he won. And he gave such a beautiful speech. And he was funny. And he was quick. And it was just like, yeah, I, I this is a person I want to tell me stories. Mm. This is this is the visionary that I want. Um, this uh, means so much to me. I, I, I stopped writing this movie about 20 times because I thought it was impossible. I thought it wasn't gonna work. I thought no one would ever make this movie, but I kept coming back to it because I knew if someone let me make this movie, that people would hear it and people would see it. So I wanna dedicate this to all the people who raised my voice and let me make this movie. Another thing that Peel, as he was, again, doing all the rounds on this film and, and he's talking so openly and so passionately about this film, as, as you would think, he constantly credited Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives mm-hmm. as inspirations for this film, incredibly openly. And, and he'd also mentioned Night of the Living Dead as well, not mm-hmm. quite as much, but it was also mentioned in his conversations. And uh, so that's kind of where the, oh, fuck, if we're going to do Stepford Wives, this is this may be the time we can talk about Get Out, because it is about what I want to call rational paranoia that society tries to teach us not to have. Okay. And I think 
that is fascinating. I think when you view the two films together, there are some similarities, but they both stand on their own. Mm. Um, but I think they complement each other in very interesting ways. Yes. No, I agree. For me, the similarity between these two films is is in the way they reflect how these two quote-unquote marginalized groups are constructed and idealized within a white dominant patriarchal society. There is an ideal woman and an ideal woman serves the patriarchal white male and there is an ideal black American and the ideal black American is someone who is colonized and bought and sold and adopted by the dominant patriarchal white male. So I think it's really telling that both of our protagonists in these films are photographers, which we'll get into. And both these films are absolutely satires. They have their moments of suspense, moments of humor, moments of pathos, very watchable. But again, that just helps the medicine get down. Yeah, I think both these films are almost deceptively accessible. Mm-hmm. And it's when you kind of take those pauses and think, you know, when you start breaking them down, they, they become so rich. And and that's what I like. That's that's what excites me as a film goer. I think Jordan Peele even alludes to that in some of his interviews. Is just like, when you go to a horror movie or you go see a comedy, you let your guard down. You let stuff in because you're prepared to have an emotional response, be it terror, be it laughter, whatever it is. And so the other messaging just kind of gets in under the radar because well, you're not getting your back up. And, and as Peel and other people have said, you know, films are really how we learn empathy. Mm-hmm. And um, I was recently part of a panel about horror films and, and someone in the horror community, who I consider to be pretty prominent in the horror community, made a comment being like, well, it's just a horror movie. It doesn't really matter. And I just thought, I hate you. I hate how much privilege is inherent in that fucking attitude. It was mind-boggling to me, and I think I just had some kind of, like, blackout yeah. throughout the rest of that panel. And it, it, because it made me... You did. I saw it happen. Yeah. <laughs> It made me so sad because we tell ourselves stories for a reason. And this is why the discussion of who is behind the camera is so important. Just Mm -hmm. like Joanna was the photographer in the last film, the fact that not only is Chris a photographer in this film, again, we're going to talk about that in a second, and we're going to talk about this notion of the quote-unquote black film and black horror film. And it's so important. And I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way. I, I consider it a real privilege to be to be able to watch this kind of film and, and understand more. Absolutely. You say things now. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're getting all worked up. Um, we're getting teared up, guys. We're getting choked up. So let's talk a bit about photography. We talked about how photography is an interesting vocation in that it's such a controlled gaze. Like the film itself has a gaze. It has a male gaze. It has a female gaze. It has a filmmaker who is controlling what we see, how we see it, and how that is portrayed. The fact that Chris is a prominent photographer in New York City. His photography is considered very raw and urban, which is already something of a commodification of the male experience, right? Like there's already an air of authenticity that this is your reality. And in my privileged position, I'm kind of getting a peek at it through your lens. So there's already a bit of commodification there, but at the same time, it is a celebration of his perspective. Mm -hmm. He's making money off it. He's got a fucking sweet apartment in New York City. I would love that place, (laughs) even in Toronto. A super cute dog. Uh, It's not as cute as my dog, but it's a pretty cute dog. But he's valued for his perspective, and his perspective is linked to his racial identity. And that's part of what makes him so attractive to his buyer, the art dealer. Mm -hmm. 
And to bring it back to Susan Sontag, who I referenced in The Stepford Wives, again, it's, it's this taking of power that a photographer can have. They can take something from government-issued photograph and reframe it. Mm-hmm. They can take a photo from another angle, and all of a sudden the story becomes different. It is documentation, which becomes incredibly important in this film, because throughout the film you see Chris with his um, photographer camera, Taking photos, kind of snapping them, and that doesn't quite come back. What does come back is the photo he snaps on his cell phone, which has a flash. Mm-hmm. And that, he realizes, can actually cause a break in whatever control is overshadowing these people's minds. That's and, right. I mean, the scene at the party, which you reference, is chilling. I always have a lot of feelings when I see him photographing that scene because on the one hand, he's a guest. Mm -hmm. He is 100% a guest, and I feel like he is using the camera to put himself at a distance from everyone else. When he feels uncomfortable, which, fucking fair enough, the microaggressions and the awkward fucking shit going down in this party would make anyone feel incredibly conspicuous and uncomfortable. And he has that to kind of be like, "Ah, I'm just over here taking photos don't mind me, I'm busy. I fucking do that. I do that at room org events when I need a little bit of a moment, you know, and I, I just kind of put something between me and the event. So there's that happening. And I think there's also a really significant part. First of all, his cell phone camera is so, so crucial to the plot. His phone and it being charged and him having a link to the outside world is a really important plot point. But even just if you consider the significance of having cameras in our phones on us at all times, for you and me, that's something that we can take a picture of our pets when they're being cute. To black urban communities, that can be a matter of life and death. That mm-hmm. is something that you can pull out to take footage of police brutality. Yep. And it's, it's when we talk about Chris capturing his reality through photography, it's a significant thing. Absolutely. And what Sontag talks about is photographs being able to furnish evidence, whether it's evidence of going on a trip, evidence of having family, evidence of being sucked in by this terrifying, weird white cult. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's something to prove that something happened. But while it's doing that, it also surveils the areas. It, it keeps track of things. It, it keeps different narratives at play. Mm-hmm. And in a non-totalitarian state, it can actually be incredibly powerful and empowering, which is what we see in Chris's work and what we see through him and his eyes, shall we say. Yes. Through some other recent conversations I was having with my partner, he mentioned a paper that really affected him and that he really responded to when he was in his undergrad. It's a paper called Surveilling the City, Whiteness, the Black Man, and Democratic Totalitarianism by a white dude named John Fisk. I know John Fisk. Like personally? No. Oh. No, but Fisk and Morley were were in my thesis a whole bunch, so please proceed. Amazing. It's a really interesting article that there is, luckily, a full PDF online. So we can link that in the show notes. I think it's really accessible, so highly recommend everyone check it out. And it begins with discussions about O.J. Simpson and Rodney King. Rodney King, who is a black man who is beaten, and the trial where the cops who beat him were let off, caused the L.A. riots. And O.J. Simpson, former football player and kind of beloved celebrity who was accused of killing his wife, 
which (laughs) nicely dodged, but had one of the strangest and most watched car chases in Mm. television history with the slow moving white Bronco. And it is it was one of the most watched things at the time. And his trial really kicked off the kind of vociferous nature of the 24-hour news cycle. Mm. And Fisk was talking to black men, obviously, for this paper. And uh, one of them mentioned feeling like his eye was in the helicopter, but his heart was in the car with OJ because he felt like it knew what it was like to be watched like that. Fuck. And that was terrifying. And and it's so it's, – it's, I don't have words for no. what that feels like because I can't understand that because as – White women, we were raised to believe like, oh, if you have a problem, you go to the cops. Don't worry if they don't believe you or not. Just go to the cops. Well, about certain things. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Fisk goes on to talk about the prevalence of surveillance and how it manifested intensified policing and moral totalitarianism. Surveillance being the most important aspect of this and without it, the other two things. So without it, policing and totalitarianism wouldn't exist. He pulls in Foucault, who argues um, the repressive elements of surveillance are masked by the efficiency and benefits. So when you see cameras out in the world, we're told like, oh, they monitor traffic. They stop petty crime and, mm-hmm. and major terrorism. They're safety things. Yeah. yeah. If you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about mm-hmm. is this kind of like Orwellian message that gets put into our brains. But – the subjects, us as a people, society, community, uh, we don't have a say in it and we don't have an ability to influence it. And white America or white North America, white most everywhere, can believe that it is a free and fair system, while black America and other black parts of the world understands that this notion is false Mm -hmm. and that surveillance is the perfect vehicle for a non-racist racism. The benefits that it supposedly provides allow it to be concealed and it creates a racialized difference. Black behavior is seen and white behavior is not. Mm. Fisk uses an example of a white guy standing on a corner checking his cell phone and then looking at the same behavior of a black man standing on the corner checking his cell phone. One is suspect, one is not. Mm-hmm. And what this does is it serves to normalize a sort of behavior as white, whereas everything else becomes abnormal. Other. Exactly. And that this surveillance, this policing of surveillance, this moralism of surveillance, um, again, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have to worry about it. That's that moralism. It serves to maintain this discipline of what is normal and, again, abnormal. And the surveillance thrives in predominantly white spaces. So this could be commercial districts, public recreation, upscale residential area, and it therefore stigmatizes areas that are not surveilled and makes those feel further ghettoized. So in this society, the surveillance society, privacy is political. Mm -hmm. Who can have privacy? Who is allowed to have privacy? Mm -hmm. Who is tracked? Who is not tracked? As we were just mentioning, cell phones. We we are constantly tracked on our cell phones. And, you know, when you look back in the 70s, you know, this goes back to something like Roe versus Wade and the fight for abortion rights. You know, a woman's body being autonomous Mm -hmm. and a right to privacy and a right to choice. 
unfortunately, another debate we are still having, but the right to privacy and community and those spaces which are not infiltrated by this creepy white gaze is, mm-hmm. is really doesn't usually exist. Right. So this film came out within Donald Trump's first term. And the world, for me, changed in that first term. A lot of things that I had feared and suspected and knew was simmering under the surface came up to the surface, and it was very hard to take. And so I I think that's part of the power of this film is that it's very, very timely. It was a time where I needed to see satire like that played out. And if you hear Jordan Peele talking about this film, is he talks about how This film exists in a context of the post-racial lie, which is the post-Obama, we're all over this race thing. We had a black president. I basically had a black friend. I can't be racist, right? And then Trump comes in and all this racism bubbles up to the surface. You know, there's a severe problem with proclaiming to be colorblind because that perspective ignores these power differentials and doesn't solve the problem. And so within this film, you know, we see Chris asking Jim, the very end, the art dealer, why they use black people. He doesn't have an answer, Mm -hmm. which I always thought was so interesting. It's just these well-meaning white liberals who just blithely ignore race. And that's a privilege. Well, at the same time, fetishizing the black body. That's right. And that happens in this film throughout. I thought it was really poignant. I, I felt like these were microaggressions that... Maybe I hadn't been a part of actively, but I've seen. I've seen that kind of rhetoric for sure. And you see these stereotypes played out throughout the film. Like we're shown a myriad of stereotypes associated with the black American male. You've got Jeremy's remarks about mixed martial arts, the tokenism, the Tiger Woods comment. You uh, you ever play golf? Mm, once. A few years ago. It wasn't very good. Gordon was a professional golfer for years. Oh, you kidding? Well, I can't quite swing the hips like I used to, though. But uh, I do know Tiger. Oh, that's great. Super. Gordon loves Tiger. Oh, best I've ever seen, ever. Hands down. Uh, So, Chris, uh, let's see your form. And in the end, the Armitages have basically modernized slavery right down to the bidding war. And it is their privilege of privacy outside of surveillance that allows them to do this. Yeah. You know, the the dad brags at some point that there's like no one else around. They've got this big space to themselves. But Chris is able to infiltrate that through his cell phone, even though they try to dissuade him at every turn with like the unplugging of it and all of those things, Mm -hmm. which in turn kind of feel like little microaggressions. And I love that because that's something that we can all relate to that link to the cell phone, the cell phone being your outside world. Well, it's like we talked about. It's, you know, we a little bit in the House of the Devil episode with headphones. We're creating our own worlds. We're allowed to have those things because of this technology. And when you strip that technology away, yes, the cell phones and the surveillance that that stems from them is creepy and and very big brother. But there are some points like we were talking about in, you know, the black community filming police interactions. Mm terrifying things happening, that it actually becomes a source of power. It becomes a necessity. Yeah. At the very least, a sense of agency. A yeah. sense of, I, I was here, I saw this, and I can fucking prove it. Mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting that uh, one of the sketches Key and Peele was best known for was um, the President Obama sketches with the anger translator. And so what you have is Jordan Peele doing, I think, a very bang-on Barack Obama impression. <laughs> 
and then Keegan-Michael Key behind him as the quote-unquote anger translator. So you'd have Barack Obama is played by Jordan Peele saying these kind of normal presidential things. Yeah. And then this very like angry black man behind him like yelling things. Mm-hmm. And it's this really like fun dynamic. And I felt like they were already talking about the post-racial lie. Yeah. Throughout their humor. It was it was always ingrained in what they were saying. That's so, right. Again, this get out is another way to talk about it. And Obama even talked about it. I think he even kind of addressed the fact that if you see a black kid with a book, you can't say that he's playing at white because he's been accused, obviously. We've got Donald Trump directly challenging mm-hmm. his birthright or what have you. But he's been accused of not being black enough. And, you know, I think dealing with humanity and stereotypes in communities is so massive and it is so big. But this film, we really like the terrible art dealer get to see everything through Chris's eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. So. I wanted to talk about something, and this was um, a TED Talk based on a book that Robin Armines Coleman mentioned in her response to Get Out in an article in Horror Homeroom that, again, we'll link that, and we're going to link this TED Talk because it's about 13, 14 minutes. It's super interesting. And it's by a guy by the name of Richard Benjamin, and it's called Whitetopia. Benjamin? No. (laughs) (laughs) Not him again. No. Uh, Rich Benjamin. And Richard Benjamin spent a couple years of his life going and living in the most white suburbs of America. Mm-hmm. And he would call, rent houses, so no one knew who he was, and he'd show up and solely ingratiate himself in the community, go out to events, host people, do things, and just get to know people and understand why these white enclaves were happening Mm. and what he could take away from it. And he's written a whole book about it, um, which I really want to read now, but I didn't get a chance before this episode. So I'm pulling mainly from the TED Talk here. So his definition of Whitopia is it has good property values, friendliness, orderliness, and safety. It is possible to be in Whitopia not for racist reasons, but that in itself begets racist outcomes. Many of these whites feel pushed out by immigrants, social welfare, abuse of welfare, density, crowded schools, things like that. And they feel pulled by the privacy and freedom of these white suburban communities where they can have access to all the things they feel entitled to and that they can afford. And one of Benjamin's kind of biggest questions coming out of this was that All the people he interacted with, there's certainly a lot of them. He says, you know, they're kind, they're nice, they're good people. But how can we have a country full of racism without racists? And he cites, you know, the interpersonal relationships are better, but the communities are not. We are now talking about systemic racism, Mm -hmm. where residential areas and educational access are segregated. The more segregation we have, the less we can confront an unconscious bias. Hmm. And an unconscious bias is basically like ingrained racism that we don't say. It's the white woman who has a million black friends, but might hold her purse close to her when she passes a black guy on the street. Yeah. For an example. I'll also use another example I heard recently in my real life. So a friend's company was running unconscious bias workshops at their company. And 
they had to cut some of these workshops short, but they wanted to conduct a survey. And they worked with this outside uh, company who was about activism and social justice to kind of get at, like, what people's thoughts and ideas were as they headed into these things, as they went out, how they were feeling so they could better facilitate these kinds of workshops in the organization. And this survey went to the leadership team of this organization. And they cut the entirety of the page worth's questions about white privilege. They cut it? Yeah. The sense this person got that I spoke to was that they felt like the organization didn't want to upset anyone with questions of white privilege. Wow. Yeah. And I hate that. Yeah. And it is a predominantly white organization from everything we could tell. It's so insidious because it burrows so deep underground. And I was thinking about when we were watching The Stepford Wives, my own mother who stayed home and raised her kids until I was the third. And when I was old enough to be in school full time, she sought out a full time job. And when I became interested in feminism in my undergrad and I was talking to her about it, she'd say something like, well, I'm not a feminist or anything, but I think the labor that I did keeping this household going while your dad was the only one working was just as worthy as his labor. And I was like, mom, mom, (laughs) hello. Like it's a conflation of terms, a misunderstanding and just a lack of awareness. Really, which is, I think, uh, this film is so important in that it illustrates these things in very actionable ways, like uh, behaviors and speech patterns that you would never think are racist. And you might even think that addressing them in the way that people do in this film is anti-racist, but it's quite the opposite. Yeah, and I think even the insidious thing in this film is great for the rewatch and the kind of callbacks it has to itself from the beginning to end. It's better with every watch. It's, it is truly, I think, better with every watch. And, you know, the um, the moment at the beginning of the film when the car pulls them over mm-hmm. or, or Rose calls the cops after they hit that deer and yes. she refuses to let Chris give his ID. Which is such a fucking privileged thing. I was watching that and Uh, I consulted a Guardian article in preparing for this episode, which describes how black inner city children have become shapeshifters by learning the verbal and nonverbal norms of two different worlds. And we were talking before with regard to the Stepford Wives, we were talking about the the, the private sphere and the professional sphere. We were talking about how women speak differently when they're among other women. Or when they're among a mixed group, there is a change in the power dynamic, and that change means everything. And when it comes to black children, this code switching, in white spaces, they can become very self-conscious about being misinterpreted because they've learned, they've quickly internalized that they will never get the benefit of the doubt. And that is something that is so well illustrated in that particular scene with Chris and Rose because... Chris has learned that the path of least resistance is the best path all the time. Whereas Rose, within her privilege, is going to be like, I can stir up some shit. I can call you out for being a racist because what the fuck are you going to do to me? And it's one of those things. It's like white knighting. You know, like we've talked about that within our community where the best of intentions, but shut the fuck up. Well, and then, of course, it's even more insidious in this film because it's – you can insinuate that she doesn't want his ID checked because it might be tracked. Fuck, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. But it's true. And I think Chris's attitude towards that, as you were saying, the path of least resistance 
much like Joanna's, much like Rosemary Woodhouse's, is that of what I mentioned, you know, being nice over feeling safe. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking because you're just watching him, like you watch Joanna, like you watch Rosemary, go through all these steps to be liked, to go with the flow. And it is only when he is pushed to his extreme that his mental health is tested that he says, I can't do this and I need to go. Yeah. And it is so... I don't have words. When you think of the ways that he's pushed to his limit, like the power differentials aren't only racial throughout. Like, think about meeting your partner's parents Mm -hmm. for the first time. Think about the pressure. Think about, my God, when Missy's like, do you smoke in front of my kid? That's my fucking kid. That's harrowing. And it breaks him because he truly loves Rose. And he's just like, oh, shit, fine. Hypnotize me. Whatever. Whatever. Path of least resistance. And now that we're all bummed out, uh, I want to – can we talk about the sunken place? Mm-hmm. Because we talked about the Stepford Wives and the Stepford Wives were largely seeing from Joanna's perspective until Joanna no longer has a perspective. Yeah. One thing I really love about Get Out, one of Get Out's most innovative things, which I personally think is what tipped it over for the Oscar, is the sunken place and how the sunken place is so – beautifully visually represented as a space where he is at a great distance from his perception. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor for the cinema where black audiences feel a great distance from what it is they're seeing on screen because they never see themselves represented in there. But also the horror of being able to see and not act yeah. and the paralysis inherent in that, which I think is something that he feels throughout this ordeal. Mm-hmm. And the fact that just like the term Stepford has become common term in popular culture, so is the sunken place. Totally. It caught on so quickly. And to me, as a film critic and as a film fan, it just means we as audiences had been waiting for this film for so long. Yeah. And it came and it delivered and it just fit. And now it's like there's this whole new other puzzle that we need to keep building on and we need to keep solving. So we... Don't all just stay in the sunken place. We keep learning and growing. And I think, you know, there's so many beautiful, again, deceptively simple visual metaphors from, you know, Chris's mother dying to the television watching, to him sinking in to himself when he was a child to, you know, now as an adult. There are all of these things that play around each other. And it brought back to my mind this, you know, Fisk notion of surveillance. You know, you had apparently a black woman dying on the side of the street, and no one helped her, or no one could help her, or no one saw her. Mm-hmm. And it just, yeah. So while Andrea and I swim around in our white guilt, we thought this would be a good time to talk about the figure of the white savior. And the white savior, if you're not familiar with that term, we'll link a couple articles in the show notes. And the white savior has been kind of, I don't know, for me, commonly known as a filmic trope. But you can have an industrial white savior. So there's there's the white people go to Africa and are like, I worked with these children. Mm -hmm. Here are my Instagram photos. Bye now. It's an industrial complex of feeling good. So the white savior in film would be um, one of the most egregious examples would be something like... Dangerous Minds. Dangerous Minds. Ah, is that what you're going to say? No, I was going to say The Help. Whoa. Um, but there's so many. There's so many. In, in so many Hollywood movies about race, there is a good white person. It's Brad Pitt in 12 Years a Slave. It's Kevin Costner in Hidden Figures. It's all these good white people so that the white audience that goes to see these films can say, 
look, I'm like that person. I'm the nice one. That's me. I'm super nice. And I would help people in this situation. And in Get Out, I, I don't think there's a single good white person. Well, there's Jim, right? We're seeing this through Chris's eyes so deeply that when he's talking to Jim, and Jim is a blind man, so Jim maybe doesn't know that Chris is black, or maybe he does, and he's he not addressing see race. it. He doesn't see race, perhaps literally, but what we do see is that Chris visibly lets his guard down. Not only is this guy not making weird racist microaggressions at me. He's commending me for my photography, which is something that I care about and something that's important to me. And I respect this guy. I respect his opinion. It's such a great red herring. And when it turns and and, uh, they've got Jim talking to Chris while he's, you know, tied up in the rec room and he's talking to him and he's explaining it because apparently this helps the process go better. I'm supposed to answer any uh, outstanding questions, uh, concerns you may have so far. Apparently, our common understanding of the process has a positive impact on the success rate of the procedure. And then he ends with, I'm done now. Yeah, that's it. And I was like, oh, no. It was so cold. But this white savior figure exists as I said, to make white audiences feel better, to give them a conduit, to give them something. Mm -hmm. And in the space of not having a white character who you should relate to, if you relate to any of these white characters, Mm -hmm. please unsubscribe from our podcast. (laughs) Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. That's all I can say. And we, as an audience, we have to see through Chris's eyes. It is a major help that Chris is played by Daniel Kaluuya, who is amazing, has also one of the best American accents I've ever heard. What do you mean? He's British. What? Yeah, he was on Skins and in, I think, an episode of Black Mirror. Huh. Yeah. Oh, I remember that episode yeah, of Black Mirror. It's that super upsetting, fucked. right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And very rightfully so, nominated for Best Actor. I still think he should have won. But, you know, that's me. That's my personal feeling. By having us all fully engage in Chris's gaze, we are allowing ourselves to see through a black gaze. Yeah. And that is important. And this goes into something that if you are interested in this topic, I cannot recommend Robin Armin's Coleman's book, Horror Noir Enough. Right at the outset, she delivers kind of two terms. She differentiates between blacks and horror and black horror. Mm-hmm. So blacks and horror, black people will play a significant role, but it can usually be stereotypical. Disposable. Disposable. Or, you know, even something like a candy man or uh, people under the stairs. It's the easiest othering. Yeah. Short of a woman. Even even if it's a noble othering. Mm -hmm. It's an othering. Black horror is when it has black leads, but it also has black creators. So you are creating a black gaze. And again, it's, it's a normalizing of these different gazes. And I think the success of Get Out, the rampant success of Get Out, the critical love for it, the Oscar, to me indicates that audiences are ready for this. We saw, you know, something kind of similar this summer with Crazy Rich Asians, which was a romantic comedy centered around Asian characters. And people didn't want to make it. They wanted to, you know, change things. But it was a really successful book and it became a really successful film multiculturalism and diversity, it's real. It, like, we need it. Yeah. 
And it'll make you money. I mean, needing it is one thing. Supply and demand, we understand economics right here in the faculty of horror. You want a fucking Oscar? Let diverse voices speak. And if anything, Hollywood is a fucking business. And you can love a film all you want and it doesn't do well, then people will not care about it. When Mm -hmm. it does well at the box office, people give a shit. Why do you think we have so many goddamn Avengers movies? And that's fine because people love them. But we also have Get Out. But why don't we have more Get Outs? Because at this point, you know, we've given it some space. We've given it some time to digest. And so have the movie execs. Well, not to sound like a certain Vogue article, but I I frankly this year was a little shocked that we didn't see people picking up the mantle mm-hmm. or the gauntlet that mm-hmm. Jordan Peele threw down. And by that, it's not that people individually, not that filmmakers and creators aren't doing it, because I think there are a lot of people working to make their films happen. It's that film production companies are maybe haven't greenlit those things yet or are still in production or haven't pushed those through. Win another Oscar. Right? (laughs) Make another gazillion dollars and we'll consider hiring more black filmmakers. So, you know, I mean, mean, the most popular films this year, horror-wise, were Hereditary and Halloween. Mm -hmm. And those were about white middle-class families. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And and so that's why I was kind of like, why is everyone so angry at this Vogue article? It's kind of making an interesting point. But anyway, get out. It's the lack of a white savior and the fact that it doesn't draw attention to itself is not only brilliant filmmaking, but it's important filmmaking. Absolutely. And um, and I think, again, that feeds into what Means Coleman is saying about having creators behind the lens. And I think that's, you know, that extends to not only in front of the camera, behind the camera, but in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. And ensuring that there is a diversity of voices and a diversity of takes and that you're getting the most accurate representations of communities and, and that you're having these discussions because, as you know, I, I was just listening to Jordan Peele on Oprah's podcast, you know, horror is where we go to process our fears. Yeah. And day to day, there are a lot of fucking fears right now. And there always have been and there always will be. And we need horror films that speak to our times. That's right. And if we don't have those, I feel like we're letting ourselves down. Absolutely. And the empathy that is fostered in this film through Chris, I think, is so perfectly crystallized in the ending. Are you ready to talk about the ending? Oh, I'm ready to talk about the ending. Yeah? Yeah. So in the end of this film, admittedly, my plot synopsis was very brief. I didn't go into detail. But in the ending of this film, we've got Chris driving off. He sees Georgina. He has a flashback about his mom, decides to pick her up, doesn't realize she's possessed, has to deal with her. And then he has to deal with Rose. And when he's dealing with Rose, she gets shot in the stomach by Walter. You have to have seen the movie for this to make sense. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go through this play by play. (laughs) But basically, he's strangling her. He decides not to. And all of a sudden, a car with lights shows up. And we've been with Chris for the past however long the runtime is we've seen through his eyes we've experienced all this trauma we've experienced this heartbreak we've experienced this bullshit that this guy's experienced his whole life and in the 80 whatever minute runtime that we have experienced it with him 100 minutes we have made assumptions such that when we see that car and mm-hmm. we see those lights we're like oh fuck 
there is a huge pin drop in the cinema, at least when we saw yeah. it, and hopefully in your living rooms or wherever the fuck you saw it, that this is how it's going to end, and this is heartbreaking. This is the most devastating ending that this film could have. But the film doesn't end that way. I mean, there are lights and there is a car, but it's his friend Rod. But that was only one of several possible endings. There was an alternate ending, which uh, was shot, um, and it wound up with the lights flashing actually being the police and Chris being taken away. And then it cutting to six months later and Rod visiting him in prison while he's on trial or about to go on trial. And Rod is still trying to solve the mystery of what happened Mm -hmm. uh, and find evidence or prove something. Jordan Peele has talked about this quite a bit. We'll post an interview where he talks about it. But essentially, he he felt like during the time as they kind of were wrapping up and about ready to go to theaters and, and, you know, release Get Out on the World, the nihilistic ending wasn't what we needed as an audience. Yeah. We needed to see something uplifting. Yeah. And I don't think I would love the film any less if, if they had gone with an original ending, but I still, like, I feel like standing up and cheering every time it's Rod who jumps out of the car and says, T.S. motherfucking A. We handle shit. That's what we do. Consider this situation. Fucking handle. You're so happy for Chris. You're so relieved and you're so happy that for once, for once, justice prevails. Mm -hmm. For once ever. And had it ended the other way, fuck, I would have still been on board. I would have still stood up and cheered for its honesty and its brutality. And, like, I would have walked out feeling like a giant piece of white privileged shit. For him to have made that call on my behalf for my comfort is just like, (laughs) god damn you, Jordan Peele. Give me a break. Hang so, up your halo. I have a theory about the endings of both of these films. Go on. Mm. The Stafford Wives, with its incredibly nihilistic ending, is actually indicative of the narrative of white women. And we see this in particular through the white female voters of the last two major American elections. Majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. Majority of white women voted conservative in the recent midterm elections. Mm -hmm. Fuck us. And yeah, we have so much work to do. (laughs) And I think that's because the patriarchy sells itself to us really well. It offers or pretends to offer protection. It offers some kind of stability or it offers all of these semblances of things that are desirable. But it's like a snake eating itself. It's always going to circle back and not be real and not be enough and not be really anything. And I think the ending of Get Out, we needed that. I think we needed to see... Chris have a chance of getting away. You don't know what happens after they drive away because, you know, they're not driving into the sunset. They're driving into the night. And it's it's still a powerful ending, but it's one that that character deserves. I agree with that. Uh, we need to drink more. <laughs> but we're going to take that off the air. And, um, yeah, God, there is so much to this film. I'm I'm really eager to drop this episode. I don't think we're just scratching the surface. I think there's like, you know, 30 surfaces to this film to get through. There's so much scholarship being done on this film as we speak, and you should check it all out. And thank you for checking ours out. But again, these are two privileged white women speaking about it. We're going to provide other resources for other perspectives. And 
Yeah, that's what and, this film's all about. And if you're sitting there and you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering, but what can I do if you feel like you don't do anything? I think figuring out how to be a good ally, doing research, reading different perspectives is a great way to start. And calling out the shit you see every day, mm-hmm. from microaggressions to big things. To my fellow cis, white, heterosexual people, we need to do a better job calling out ourselves letting other people go ahead, encouraging diverse storytelling, and supporting different communities when and where is appropriate. Don't ask other people to do the work for you. Do the work yourself. We are lucky that we have films like Get Out, who basically hand it to us on a silver platter. So let's not turn away that silver platter. Let's dig in. And it's not easy, so don't beat yourself up. But just just learn. And don't be afraid to fuck up, because God knows Alex and I. Constantly. But... Keep at it and do your best yes. and be honest. So for next episode, we're not uh, we're not letting up on you, listeners. We're going to uh, we're going to keep hitting you where it hurts. So this was a film, and this is going to be our December episode. So this is our holiday episode, and you know we we, we like to pick something kind of holiday thematic. Oh, something festive and fun, festive and easy. <laughs> and uh, this was a film we talked about in our favorites last year of. The January recap, and we both mentioned it, and I was actually pretty shocked by how many people responded positively or or interestedly to our interest in this film. I'm sure just as many grumbled quietly. This film is one of the most divisive films I think I've seen in the last X number of years. So for December, your homework, if you dare, is Darren Aronofsky's Mother. Watch it. Or don't watch it so much as experience it. Let it wash over you. Don't overthink it. That's our job. That's your homework for December. And until next time. Office hours are closed. Closed. Office hours are closed. Office hours are closed. Stop it. Office hours are closed. Do you bleed? Ah! Stop.